0: When your knowledge of self is formed solely on one or two of your many identities, you'll always feel under threat from outside sources. I want to role
1: model, but every time I say something, I feel like people are there to bounce on me and to tear me apart.
0: Welcome to the Breaking Bias podcast, the show where we explore the stories and experiences of people from all walks of life. We are on a mission to inspire new thoughts and dialogue in an effort to challenge bias and cultivate connection. I'm your host, Heather, and joining the conversation today is Dr. Hornima Luthra. Dr. Luthra is an educator, DEI expert, TEDx speaker, and author of multiple books, including her soon-to-be-published leading through bias. In her TEDx talk, she addressed how deeply ingrained ageism is in all of our everyday environments and why a lack of trust is the root cause of this, or a root cause of this, I should say. Welcome
1: to the show, Dr. Luthra. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me,
0: Heather. Delighted to be here. Oh, I'm happy to have you here. So I, as I mentioned, I got to look at, I got to watch your TED talk, which I I loved. And the way that you articulated your points I just however it was your presence the examples that you used I really appreciated that so before we even dive in I just want to make a note to everyone listening that I'm going to link that in the show notes so go ahead and check that out it's it's 15 minutes so quick peek at that and I think it'll be helpful for people thank um, you you're very welcome before we dive into kind of your work and and your experience here I always like to start with your backstory so would you share your early years so 20. 25 and prior, any impactful events, family dynamics, religion, politics, things like that, that you feel fundamentally shaped you? Yeah, of course.
1: That's a great question. And I think everyone's got a story, right? And I'm no different. I was born in India. And in 1980, and moved when I was six months old to the UK, to Manchester, my dad did his PhD there. So the early part of my childhood was really in the UK in the early 1980s. And that was a time when I think South Asian families um, in the UK experienced significant amounts of bias in their day to day interactions with people whether it was healthcare, education. My dad was doing his PhD, of course, and that in itself had its own challenges when it came to biases as well. And then we moved to Singapore as a family in in 84, and that was home for me. Growing up in Singapore, it's a very multicultural society, but that doesn't mean that biases don't exist. They exist and they, they look different, they feel different than what it does in other parts of the world. And so I grew up as a brown child, Very much aware that I was different in some ways and in many ways compared to others, both in the languages that I spoke, the color of my skin, the way I presented myself, the way my family lived, the priorities that we had, the values as well that I grew up with. So I was very aware of my identity, that I was different, but I didn't have the vocabulary. I think for most of my I would say teenage years and even early adulthood about what that was, but there was a there was a feeling inside that you know there there was something different, and of course, I'd gone through all these experiences as a child, knowing and and emphasizing that difference. but I also as a child, my mom tells me now of course, this is what what my mom tells me not not necessarily what I remember, but she tells me that I've always had this feeling or this want or desire to to lift people who were underprivileged. So uh, whenever I had an opportunity to do volunteer work, uh, whenever I had an opportunity to engage with others, it would always be with people who I felt I wanted to understand their story. I wanted to reach out. I wanted to help in, in some way, in whatever little way I could. And in Singapore, between 12th grade and starting college, university, there's a gap of about six months. And that was actually... I think the time that really had a profound influence on what would then become a career choice for me. And I volunteered at a school for, it was known as a school for the intellectually disabled at the time. And of course, we know now that we have shifted language around this, thankfully, but that's what it was known as. And I volunteered there for about six months. And that really changed the way I looked at the world around, understood what injustice and inequity really looked like and felt like for, of course, the young people that I was supporting, but also for their families and how society around them really judges, discriminates against not just their children, but also them as parents, as grandparents, as siblings as well. So I think that experience had a real impact on me and that perhaps shaped what I wanted to do. And so I Really wanted to get into HR because I felt that that was an area where I could have impact. I enjoyed being around people. I wanted to study human behavior. And that was something that I was really curious about. And these experiences of mine really kind of provoked that interest, that curiosity in me. But when you come from an Asian background and maybe a South Asian background, there are really only three career choices that you have you can be a doctor, you can be a lawyer, or you can be an engineer. Now, I didn't want to be a lawyer. At that time, when I was 17, 18, I assumed law was all about arguing with others, and that didn't seem very appealing at the time. I didn't want to be a doctor. The very thought of using, you know, or or seeing the sight of blood was not something that really appealed to me. And so I said, okay, it's not doctor and it's not a lawyer. So I guess engineering it is. And very stereotypically and feeding right into the model minority myth, I was good at math and science. and so. Of course, engineering seemed like the sensible choice to me. So I did an electrical engineering degree. And during that course, this was in the early 2000s. So I started my course in 1999, 1998, actually. And in that, at that time, I was one of a handful of women in a cohort of about 300-ish students. And in every tutorial group, I was often the only female student if we look at binary gender identities the only female student in a classroom of about 15 in tutorial groups and there were many instances of microaggressions of these exclusionary behaviors and i i guess retrospectively can see what an impact it had on me at that time it did have an impact but i think i didn't have again the vocabulary to be able to say this is what it is and There wasn't the kind of literature that we see today available for all of us uh, to be able to identify what these behaviors are. But there were also no systems and structures, policies, practices to be able to lean on to say, hey, this is what I'm experiencing. Are there support groups for this or what can we do to address this? That didn't exist. So I went through life of those four years, you know, between the ages of 18 and 22, really assuming that, well, this is just how life is. What can you do, right? You just have to accept it. And some of those, you know, things were around, of course, being very much the underrepresented in all these settings, but also having no instructors who looked like me. When I looked at the big companies that I potentially could find jobs in after graduation, there was no one in leadership or senior leadership roles who looked like me. And when we did practical, you know, assignments and tutorials or lab assignments, and there was soldering involved, or there was a bit more of technical CAD cam or 3d imaging involved I would have my male peers tell me oh you don't want to spoil your nails let's do it for you or you know women are not good at 3d and uh, imaging and so we'll we'll take a we'll take this you know you you don't worry you rest you relax and little did they know that actually my dad was instrumental in teaching me how to build the skills that would be necessary for changing a light bulb doing soldering using a saw so I've been doing that since I was a teenager So it it. I was probably could solder better than than some of the other male peers, but these were the kind of day to day interactions around it. And I know you can't see me right now, but I'm not really one for uh, painted nails as such. So it really did have an impact on on me. And I think every time I did a course, in, and we could do cross-faculty courses, so I would go to the business school, and every course I did was around organizational behavior and organizational psychology, and I would excel at those courses. I thoroughly enjoyed them. I enjoyed learning. I I, I did well in them, and I was fully engaged. And I think that that really cemented the desire to go down that pathway. So I have a squiggly career. And I finished my undergraduate degree at 22 and found my way, a real squiggle. I'm a big fan of the term squiggly career. It's another TED talk, actually. You can look it up by these two incredible women who talk about the fact that careers don't have to be linear and they can be squiggly. And so I do have one of those squiggly careers. And I found my way during my master's in in mechanical engineering supply chain management, hoping that that would be somewhat of a bridge. And then did my PhD finally. Within information systems, so again, very much on the traditional technical side, but what I did was really explore topics around knowledge management and really bringing in organizational theory there. And then, of course, I got my big break to be able to teach as a teaching assistant during my PhD program in the business school. And then one could say the rest is history, right? Finding my way to what I actually wanted to do, which was to study and look, do a, do research within the area of talent management and a really strong focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. So that was a maybe a long answer to <laughs>
0: who I am. I love it. It's a long, but it's a full answer. And I think the context is really important. First of all, loving squiggly career. I love that term. Never heard of it before, but I love it. I'm embracing it. I also think it's really fascinating when I to hear that, first of all, I often ask people why they got into the work they do. Now, obviously, you've just kind of given us a really huge piece of, of what created you, right? And what drew you to this work. What I find fascinating is that you saw the ability to impact change through the lens of HR and I also feel like that's a really great insight and you were so young when you first came to that and of course you you did the squiggly career and you came back around and and circled back to it but I think it's fascinating that you had that insight do you know where that came from where where you were able to connect and and consider that as an area where you could be impactful I think it was about studying human behavior I think that's always okay. been my curiosity
1: and my the area or what i thought would link addressing injustice and inequity with human behavior and it's very much at the core of all the research that i do and the books that i write around changing and and molding human behavior in a way that affects positive change right so i think all my work and and of course my education has then been grounded in that area right so I saw human resource management and as a as a line of education that would enable me to be able to study within the business school organizational psychology, understanding human behavior within institutional setups. And that was really the driver there, I would
0: say. Excellent. And you talk about and actually one of one of your books is about this, but one of your focuses in DEI is diversifying DEI. Diversifying diversity, I should say. I think that with more clarity. Um, I'm curious if you can expand on that concept for us and why you feel like it's important. Yeah, absolutely. So my journey with
1: diversifying diversity actually began with a very personal and professional experience I had. I'd been teaching at a university in Singapore for many years, and I'd always taught undergraduate courses I had really good student evaluations and peer evaluations, which in academia is really important for next opportunities, for promotions, and things like that. And so there was a new course that was going to be launched in an area of my research and teaching interests. And I thought, all right, there we go. This is a chance for me to take the next step to teach a master's level course. And so I went to the program director and I said, I'd really like to be considered to teach this course. And he looked at me and he said, not until you've got a lot more white hair. And in that moment, um, there I was, a woman of color. And those were not the two dimensions of diversity that I was being discriminated upon in that moment. It was age. I was simply too young to be able to teach a master's level course. It didn't matter about my competencies, my strengths, what I brought to the table. I was just too young. And that actually began my journey to diversifying diversity, to getting companies to put more on the table When they looked at diversity. Now, even now, even today, it's been a long time since that incident, but even today, when we look around us, in most organizations, especially here in Europe, I would say because of data protection laws and GDPR constraints, most organizations are focused on gender and usually a binary definition of gender. And then they focus perhaps on some form of ethnicity, culture, race, nationality, depending on what data can be collected depending on where they are in the world again depending on where you are in the world perhaps organizations today are thinking about sexual orientation but back then it was really these two areas and so I really wanted to push the agenda further with organizations to say hey we don't show up in any one or two dimensions each one of us is made up of a diversity thumbprint uh, that is the intersection of multiple different dimensions so my research was really grounded in the work of Kimberly Crenshaw and her views on looking at intersectionality. And in her work, of course, she looks at the intersection of gender identity, women, and particularly black women. So putting together race together with you know, one of the gender identities. And so I said, well, what if we could expand this further? What have we really got companies to say and think about the intersectional identities that is comprised of a weave of multiple different dimensions that come together to form who we are? And of course, that comes down also to social identity theory and really looking at, well, how do we see ourselves across all of these different dimensions? And that's what led to finally writing, of course, its many years of research. I never thought I'd write a book as such, but then COVID hit. And I thought, all right, you know, there's a bit more space in my life. There's not the running around with, you know, between football practice and basketball and guitar and drums of the kids. And I suddenly had time to be able to sit and actually put all my research into a single book. And it's a very big book, mind you. It's 463 pages. It's like a I would say it's your go-to book for all things DEI and I look at 12 dimensions of diversity there. So really trying to get companies to expand what they're looking at when they look at diversity. And my fundamental belief is that whether whether it's you know corporate organizations or social institutions, political institutions, healthcare, education, the challenge we have is that when we look at it from a very myopic view of looking at it as gender or race or ethnicity or sexual orientation we actually do an injustice because we're not able to capture the nuance. Human behavior is complex and our identities are complex. The way we experience the world around us and our workplaces is complex. It's defined by and influenced by these intersectional identities. So until we understand that, we'll actually not make progress. And that's why we're still here in 2023, still struggling with these issues. So what was the the driver behind writing Diversifying
0: Diversity? I love that you're bringing to the table this need to acknowledge the intersectionality. Now, I do want to acknowledge that some of the identities are more nominalized, they're more they're more discriminated against than others. And I think what often is happening is because those what are, are kind of the ones that are most prevalent, it's almost like we're doing a disservice to those entire human beings that are far more than this one identity that they possess. And so I love this idea of intersectionality. Recently joined an organization this year that I believe does inclusion phenomenally. It's really hard to even articulate what an organization and a culture feels like when it feels inclusive, when you know that there's intention behind it. So I'm wondering in your work, when we're talking about, because of course you know, intersectionality, diversity, and inclusion have to be partners. And one might lead to the other, but not always. So when you're working with companies or individuals or leaders, what have you experienced as some challenges that have to be overcome in order to incorporate these practices? So I'll I'll address it in two ways. First, I actually want to,
1: you know, build on what you said earlier that, you know, some identities, of course, experience discrimination or some aspects of dimensions experience discrimination in very, very severe ways. And that, and that, of course, rightfully so should take precedence. But I also love what you say that we don't show up in that one identity. There's so much more to us as well. But also, when we look globally, a lot of my work and effort is to bring to light a more global and nuanced understanding about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Because I also do fundamentally believe that there are certain narratives that, of course, from some parts of the world that take precedence and dominate what we hear. It also dominates best practice and it dominates the narratives in the media, attention, articles, literature. that is written about it as well. So starting from diversifying diversity in all my books, my aim has also been to be able to provide a more global and nuanced understanding because it's not the same dimensions of diversity that cause this extreme amounts of discrimination in different parts of the world. They look different. They feel different. The same identity of race can look and feel different and can have historical reasons that are different from other parts of the world. Um, And that's not to take away from their severity. That's not to take away from the impact that it has on people as well. So, you know, there's a, there's, I think, I'm not sure who came up with this term, but I love it. It's, uh, it's this phrase called oppression Olympics, where we, you know, want to play up one's discrimination over another. And I think it's, at the end of the day, it comes down to how people feel when they are discriminated. And you can't actually put numbers on that. You can't put a metric on that because it is so individual. It's based on your prior experiences. It depends on what triggers you. And and I think that's so. It's so important to keep that in mind, especially when we're looking at DI from a global lens. Because what discrimination feels like for someone, even across one dimension, in Asia, and Asia is of course very diverse in itself, will look different from what it feels like in Africa, which looks different from what it feels like in Southern Europe and Northern Europe as well, or the US and uh, South America and Australia. And, you know, it's important to then keep in mind that, you know, it's 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 so nuanced and it's so individual. And that's what makes it so challenging in some ways. But also, that's where we have to have a much more inclusive approach, to how we address diversity, equity, inclusion and lift the voices of those that do not get that airtime because other narratives are, of course, not because they shouldn't, they should absolutely get that, but so should these. So, you know, lifting as many of these voices up and that's something that I, I try to do, but I think much more needs to be done. We need more people doing it, right, and lifting that. So that was the first part, just to, just to, kind of build on what you said, a very important point there. Now, in terms of what I see as the biggest challenge when it comes to working with, look, I work with boards, I work with executive leaders, I work with middle managers, I work with large teams in organizations. And there are two things that are common as challenges for most people and most organizations. The first is fear. There's plenty of fear when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. We see it in different parts of the world. Fear looks different, feels different, but it is there. The well-represented are fearful. They're fearful of saying and doing the wrong thing. They're fearful of being seen as the woke police if they are from a dominant group and the ones who are advocating for inclusive organizations and addressing bias there. I've lost count of the number of times I've heard white male leaders who say, look, I really want to do something about this. I want to be inclusive. I want to role model. But every time I say something, I feel like people are there to pounce on me and to tear me apart. And we live in a world of this kind of cancel culture. And unfortunately, that's created a lot of fear in even well-meaning individuals who are willing to, you know, take the time to understand, to listen, to do better. And what it's unfortunately done is kind of shut them off. And saying, look, I'm happy to support, but I'm going to support from, from behind the scenes, you know. And so there's a lot of fear when it comes to those who are well-represented, but also the underrepresented. There's a lot of fear there of being seen as the token, just the tick box to fill the quota. There's a fear of addressing bias and discrimination that I experience or that I witness around me. Again, there's that fear of being seen as the Vogue police, even from an underrepresented perspective. And there's a there's a real fear of what the consequences will be on how I'm perceived with other people around me, whether it's in a social setting or a, a workplace setting. When it comes to a workplace setting, it's also the fear of what consequences will me addressing the bias that I experience, the discrimination that I experience have on my career prospects and, you know, the opportunities that I have. So fear is actually something that is fundamental as a big challenge that we face today when it comes to moving the needle further. And actually, my current research that I'm working on for another book that hopefully will come out in 2025 is really around unpacking fear. What does this fear really look like? And really putting some words to it. It's the elephant in the room that we don't want to talk about because it feels wrong to talk about fear. It feels wrong to say, actually, this scares me. I don't know what to say and do. This is all new vocabulary. You know, I have never heard of the acronyms LGBTQ+. What does neurodiversity mean? You know, and all of these words and vocabulary are things that we didn't grow up. There's a whole generations of us who didn't grow up learning this in school. Thankfully, the younger generations are better, but we didn't grow up. And we are in these positions of leadership, of mid-management, Right. And we don't know how to articulate it, how to communicate on it. And when we are fearful, the easiest thing we know, right, from neuroscience is that we, we hide, right? We either hide or we get defensive. So it's either the fight or the flight, right? Or the freeze, perhaps you could say there's also the freeze as well. But, so we either see those behaviors and we see those, you know, defensive behaviors coming into play. You know, weaponizing things like being Vogue, really, uh, even weaponizing inclusion itself. We see all of these happening, these behaviors happening around us in in workplaces, but we also see it, of course, in politics as well and in the societal interactions that we have. So for me, fear is fundamental to really unpacking. It's the elephant in the room that we need to address. And so my current research is really focusing on unpacking that. And then there's the other part, which of course your podcast is based on, which is bias. And bias is, again, a big challenge because we have a I'm not biased bias, right? We'd like to think that we're highly rational as individuals. We make rational decisions. But as I write on the back of Diversifying Diversity, the first line on the back is, if you have a brain, you are biased. Everyone is biased. And I think that somehow relaxes the people that I you know, speak to in my keynotes and when I do leadership training. It kind of relaxes people in the room saying that, yeah, you know, everyone is myself included. And I've got lots of embarrassing stories there about my own biases.
0: Oh, gosh, me too. Like way, way too many. And they continue. I mean, I think this idea that once we dig into a certain subject or we start doing a lot of work that we're somehow cured or we're all, but no, we're all humans and we're always going to be that. So I am invested in this fear. As you're talking, I'm like, oh, my God. The thing about fear is as you're talking, I'm thinking it feels insidious. Does the emotion of fear ever lead to something positive? And I'm just throwing that out there. I'm not trying to make some sort of definitive uh, judgment here, but it is so true. It's this idea that, oh gosh, we can't say this or we'll get canceled. Or if I don't say this, then I'm going to be at fault for upholding the status quo and and it's really hard and and as you mentioned kind of another piece to it is inclusion is the people's identity is we don't know how they feel so trying to operate based out of fear not knowing what the other person is feeling it i mean it's just a losing game it's just it's just a losing game
1: there's so much to unpack there when it comes to fear right and it's and you know, there's a wonderful quotation and I'm forgetting who it's by, but, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but when knowledge comes in, fear goes out. And, you know, I'm an educator, right, at heart, and I think, you know, for me, it's when we have greater understanding around what it is we're dealing with and how we can then be inclusive. I think a large part of the fear comes from not knowing the uncertainty I talked about vocabulary I talked about simply not knowing and when someone's experience life experience is completely different from my own it's something I don't know and when I don't know and I am not necessarily have the resources or I haven't taken the time to learn and invest that time to understanding then the fear in me then takes over right and we have that fear that it's an attack on me. It's an attack on my identity. It's my an attack on my space, right? I have enjoyed certain privilege and um, advantages in my life, and I have reached this particular place. What does this then mean for me? Am I going to be, you know, n- not have the opportunity for the next promotion because it's going to be given to someone else from an underrepresented group? And all of these starts in our mind, and so the fundamental root cure, if you'd like, it's a big word maybe to use, but the root cure for fear is actually knowledge. It's understanding. It's learning and
0: having that curiosity. Yeah. And to to speak to another angle of knowledge too, that I've personally experienced is I've experienced the release of fear, not only from additional knowledge, right? And, And understanding through that knowledge, but also that has taught me that it's okay to fail because i'm never going to know everything it's released me from this idea that perfection is attainable it's not it's it's not and that understanding how complex things are and the infinite complexity of humans has you know for me speaking personally released me from this fear of being wrong because it's no, I'm no longer tied to my ego is not based on me being right or wrong. My ego now is based on my ability to adapt and maintain my curiosity, even when it's not comfortable. So I think that's another really high emphasis on once you delve into being more knowledgeable about things, you can release fear in a lot of different ways. I love that. Absolutely. Ooh, and I can't I love, wait for this
1: book. <laughs> I love what you're saying. It's a work in progress. So it's going to be a while. But yes. Um, I'm excited about it as well, but I love what you're saying because when we look at, you know, what it would take to overcome fear in that sense, um, holding on to this belief that there's a perfect way of responding, there's a perfect way of engaging with others, um, that doesn't exist, you know, and we live unfortunately in a world where perfection is something that is sought after when actually it should be progress that is sought after as long as the, that every day I'm making progress and being better at the things that are important to me, that I'm having a positive impact than the day before, I think that's what it needs to come down to. And this idea of perfect, who determines perfect? And, you know, how do we define what perfect is? Perfect is, doesn't exist because human beings are, are complex, nuanced, and there's so much to context that influences us as well. So, I love what you're bringing up, and and this is a big topic to get into. Yes,
0: yeah, and I want to swing back to bias because I saw a term that you used, termite bias, which of course I was like, oh, oh, I love that imagery because it is, it's, it's in, it's infectious and it's behind the scenes a lot of times. So, can you explain what you mean by that term first of all for anybody that might be like, wait, what? <laughs> it's, it's not bugs, and then how do we identify it and, and counteract it? So termite biases, and termite being in
1: quotations, termite biases, is really another term that I use in my second book, The Art of Active Allyship, to describe microaggressions. Now, I'm not a big fan of the term microaggressions. The word micro somehow suggests that it's doesn't have as much of a negative impact when actually these biases that take the form of or that are disguised in humor and in casual comments and in well-intentioned remarks maybe even compliments they actually have a profound influence especially when we hear those exclusionary behaviors repeatedly again and again and again they really do eat away at us and so this idea of eating away at us got me into thinking about, well, what is that pest that eats away and causes incredible damage? And to me, that was the termite, right? And the termite is the pest that causes the most economic damage of any other pest in many countries around the world. And you don't know that your wonderful wooden cabinet is, you know, destroyed until it's too late, right? You then suddenly find this massive hole um, in it with these termites eating away, and they've probably been eating away for a while. Uh, to be able to cause that kind of damage, so that really was the inspiration you could say behind calling it termite biases to give people um a feeling of the gravity of what this does this it eats away slowly and it eats away in a in not an obvious way, but it has a profound negative impact on the person who is experiencing those termite biases, and so that that's where it really comes from now.
0: I love that term because I feel like the imagery is is exactly what it needs to be. It provides the sense of, you know, the person that's experiencing it is the wood, and we're not paying attention to the wood until we pull back the layers. Yeah, I love it. How do we, when we're thinking about this, though, because we talk about unconscious bias, and a lot of times... The unconscious bias, people they feel like they're powerless against it. Well, I don't know what's happening, so I can't, I can't do anything about it. Well, I disagree with that entirely. I'm not sure if you do, but I'm curious if you have thoughts on how we can identify maybe some explicit bias, but but more importantly, some of the ones that are a little more undercover and then counteract them. So,
1: in the upcoming book, Leading Through Bias, my co-author and I actually differentiate between explicit bias, conscious bias, implicit bias, and unconscious bias. So there are three levels, you could say, of bias. And we differentiate them on the basis of awareness and control. So with explicit and conscious biases, we're aware of the biases that we hold, and we have control over them, right? We can react to them, we can block them, we can engage with them. And so there's, those are the ones that both have awareness and control. Then we have the implicit biases where we might be aware of them, but they're so subconscious, they're subconscious in some ways, and they feed into the things that we say, the things that we do, in a way that we don't have control over them, necessarily, unless and until we move them into being an explicit bias, where we're consciously taking efforts to control them. And then the unconscious biases are the ones that we are neither aware of nor do we have control over. And those are the most challenging ones, right? And so if we divide it that way, we then get a better picture around what are unconscious biases, right? And so we need to make the unconscious, first of all, more aware. We need to become aware of it. And the ways in which we can become aware of our biases, there are a few things we can do. And I'm a big fan of, of something called a bias compass circle. I write about this in my second book. And basically a group of people that are, that you invite into this space that you can be vulnerable with, but you trust them to be able to point out your biases to you. So you need to feel, of course, psychologically safe around them to make those mistakes, what you talked about earlier, to be able to make those mistakes. So the next time, you know, you're making a decision or, You're speaking at an event or you are writing something to a large part of the organization. Of course, a lot of my work is within the organizational space. But even when you're having conversations over uh, family dinner, for example, these are the people who you feel safe with when they point out your biases to you, right? So using a bias compass circle can be helpful. And the more intersectional identities we have within our bias circle, compass circle, that means that there are people who are able to look at the biases that we may not see in ourselves and and vice versa right so hopefully you are also able to be that person for for that for the people within your bias compass circle so that's one of the ways in which we can do this and of course there's other opportunities in team settings in a workplace environment or even in family settings where we give people the the opportunity to be able to point out biases so they're not necessarily within our bias compass circle. But as we're having these conversations with people, as we're engaging in meetings with others, we have norms in place to catch bias as well. The ones that we don't notice, right? So there are many things that we can do within team dynamics. For example, one of the things that uh, quite a number of the teams that I work with really love is having a card on the table. It could be any color, take your pick, purple, orange, green, red, whatever you like. And whenever a bias is noticed by somebody in the team, they raise the card up. And the two options that the team lead has at that point in time, they could stop the conversation at that point in time and address the bias that has happened because it might be something that's directly related to the decision that's being made. Or they could say that actually doesn't have anything to do with the decisions or the, the agenda items right now, but it is an important bias. So we're going to table it to the end of that meeting or perhaps the start of the next meeting and make sure that we take it up and have that conversation around why someone felt that it was a bias, and what can we do to be able to switch language, for example, address that uh, particular bias uh, in the way that we're communicating about something. And those are just examples. But that's a really nice way as well uh, to be able to, again, become more aware of those unconscious biases that seep in, making them implicit, and then hopefully over time making them explicit so that we can actually control them and block them.
0: I really like this idea of the card. And I think what you're saying too, what's really important about the safe space or the collaborative group is that the the unconscious bias, I really do think oftentimes we have to have other people point those out to us. So not only, you know, having that connectedness to people, that are willing to point that out for you, but also having the openness to receive that and not receive it as a criticism and as a you're a horrible person, but as a, hey FYI, did you this is this is how it's coming off, you know? And not get defensive. And I think that, you know, that comes down to
1: of course Amy Edmondson's amazing work around psychological safety and the fearless organization. So if we apply some of that within the DEI space, it's really about thinking about, do we have safe spaces within our teams, within our families, to be able to, within our friends as well, to be able to have these honest conversations that we need to be having? And how do we ensure that there's a fundamental understanding that everyone is biased? Now, I do have a caveat here whenever I do trainings and keynotes as well, that, of course, there are extreme cases of, Racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia as well that need to be addressed immediately and they need to be addressed with the support of HR and anti-discrimination policies that the companies have and those are things that need to be taken up and escalated as quickly as possible and dealt with in in the way that the company sees as appropriate depending on what what the issue is. But again, here I'm talking about those biases that are embedded in those casual comments, those termite biases, but also in decision making as well. And how do we ensure that we're able to address those and learn from them? So really seeing this opportunity to be able to address bias with ourselves and with others and pointing them out as a growth and a learning uh, for the team. And the results are clear, right? There's plenty of research that shows us that teams that are able to do this means that they make better decisions and they have better interpersonal interactions with each other. And one could argue that that's the same with friends and that's the same with uh, with family units as well. Um, and we see that repeatedly, that companies that are and teams with team leaders who are inclusive, who are role modeling this who are leaning into that by being vulnerable themselves with saying, oh, gosh, thanks for pointing out my bias, right? Great catch. You know, thanks for pointing it out. And then that creates an environment of, again, coming back to Carol Dweck's work around growth mindset, that creates an environment where we're willing to grow from this and learn from this and do better as well. So when we frame this as that, that Pointing out each other's bias is a way for us to do better as a team. It improves our team dynamics. It helps us make better decisions. And that it's not that kind of harsh criticism because at the end of the day, everyone is biased. And so we are. It, today it might be someone else's bias that we're pointing out. Tomorrow it could be very well be ours, right? And I often tell this embarrassing story of my own in almost every workshop that I do, because I think it is important for people to also hear from people like me who engage on this topic on a on a daily basis, right? This is my work. This is my very existence as well. And quite honestly, when you're in this line of work, there's no real nine to five. It's 24-7. I find it so hard these days to find a Netflix program that doesn't have something to do with bias. And if anyone has... A recommendation for me, please just send it my way because I, you know, I I, I honestly, and every time I switch on something, there's some element of some form of bias or inequity or injustice. So it's really everywhere. And, you know, when you're in this line of work, I don't know if there are other DI practitioners out there as well that, you know, even in social settings, friends want to ask you questions around this. They, you know, at least in the initial stage of my career, people also wanted to see, are you really serious about this work? you know, how committed are you really to this? So, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's not a nine to five, it's 24 seven, even people within this space who do this work, we are absolutely biased. And sometimes it takes your family members to point that out to you. And for me, it was my son, my older son, four years ago, we were sitting at dinner. And just that morning, I had been conducting bias awareness workshops at a large uh, FMCG, fast-moving consumer good company. And I'd been conducting, you know, workshops every day that week. So it was very much fresh on my mind. And we were sitting in the evening having dinner and my son was sharing about what happened in school. And he said, mom, mom and dad, there was someone from school, someone at school speaking about data from Google. And I said, wow, that's great. Was he a dad from school? And as soon as the words rolled off my mouth, I was like, ah, I hope nobody caught it. But no, no, my family's very well trained with a mom in this line of work. And so my son pounced on me. There was no empathy in his way of approaching this. He he pounced on me and said, mom, that was so terribly biased of you. And it was a woman. Now, if I was incredibly honest with myself, I had a very clear image of who this man was. Someone working in Google and data was definitely Indian in my view. I could tell you which city he came from in India. I could tell you which educational institution. I probably would put it down that he lived in California somewhere. I could tell you what languages he spoke. I could tell you how many children he had, what his wife looked like, what food he enjoyed as well. So I had a clear image of who the person is. And in my books, I write about this image as being a cookie cutter, right? And then I believe that our organizations are plagued with what I call the cookie cutter syndrome. We have a definition, a prototype, a mold of who we consider to be a successful employee uh, in a particular role and who is a successful leader um, in an organization. And these cookie cutters very much like how if we go, if we bake a batch of cookies or we buy a batch of cookies, they all look the same, right? And, And we believe that these cookie cutters are what, is needed to be successful, but I would really encourage all of us to think about: Really, is that the case? What if we mounted these cookie cutters down? What if we redefined who someone working in Google in data should be, right? And is so that with that incident, you know, for me is a really deeply embarrassing one for someone in the DEI space to to have those words roll off your tongue. But they happen. They're implicit. They happen. And you don't, I was aware of it, but of course it came out, right? And it, I did not have control over it. I did not block it in that moment. It showed up in its full glory and, and, and displayed my, my bias. But I think it's also having the humility to say, you know, well, yeah, you're right. I, I am biased and and there's work to be done. And, you know, you started off earlier saying that, you know, this is a work in progress. We never, it never ends. You know, we might get better at becoming aware of some biases, but it's a lifetime journey. You know, it, we've taken decades to lather on the layer of biases through social conditioning. And it's going to take us time to be able to unpack all of that,
0: probably our whole lifetimes. Deep, deep conditioning. I, I also share some gender bias, which it doesn't make sense that I do. I shared this with another guest recently that I do a lot of what people would expect men to do. I like to build things. I can. I'm hands-on. And yet I still catch myself in a similar bias. And also, love your son. Love the young generation for how stark they can be, because they can be, right? If, if an adult called you out in the same manner, you probably wouldn't appreciate it as much. <laughs> Maybe not anyways. But I, I just love it, and I, I love that they're uh, aware of it as well. So moving to our final questions, and I feel like if, what you just shared is your and your son called you out on it how how do you challenge certain biases as you see them come up for yourself
1: yeah so i have a i have a methodology that i go through myself but it's also one that i write about in my books as well i think for me it's about listening without getting defensive i think the instinctive reaction for all of us is that when our bias is pointed out, we see it as a threat to us being a good person. And we equate bias with being bad, with being a bad person. And we need to reframe that. We need to delete that equal sign in our mind. We need to understand that it's how our brain processes information. It's the social conditioning that we've had. And so listening without getting defensive, really resisting the urge to get defensive. And believe me, it's hard. It takes a lot of, it's a muscle, right, that we've not trained. So we need to keep at it. So listening without getting defensive, apologizing without over-apologizing. Now, this is an important one because I feel that in our effort to justify that we are not a bad person, we go down the pathway of over-apologizing making the other person who's actually bringing up the bias they might end up actually apologizing for bringing even bringing it up right <laughs> which is such a shame because it removes from the learning opportunity that actually can take place so apologize without over apologizing and this over apologizing can look like things like oh but i have friends who are part of the lgbtq plus community or i attend the pride parade every year or i have friends who are people of color you know and so really justifying that without you know, in in a way that comes across as lack of sincerity and lack of ability to want to learn and grow. So apologize, keep apologies crisp, sincere, but crisp, and then move on to actually responding in a way that demonstrates your willingness to move to the next stage, which is introspection. And what I mean by responding in a way that shows your willingness to introspect is really having a phrase in your mind. Because remember in that moment, Our instinct takes over. It's a threat, right? Someone is threatening us with a belief that we are not a good person. So our instinctive thing is to get defensive, to start justifying it through over apologizing. And then what we get into the next phase of is really not responding in a way that demonstrates growth. So I have a phrase that I use, and I would encourage everyone to find their own phrase that they have at the tip of their tongue that comes into play as soon as you recognize someone bringing up a bias. This is what you lean on, and it's taken years, of course, to practice it. So now it comes more instinctively for me; it just it comes naturally. But my phrase is "good catch, good catch, thanks for pointing it out. I'm going to take time to respect to introspect on it and do better." Right. So that's my but I love good catch. I think it's a very powerful phrase. And of course, please find your own in your own language and your own vocabulary uh, that describes. And that good catch actually comes from the medical field, where, um, again, it's related actually to psychological safety. And when we look at teams that, you know, this was plenty of research that was done when they looked at teams of doctors and junior doctors and nurses. They found that there were many mistakes that were being made in the operating theater where nurses and junior doctors didn't feel safe enough to be able to challenge senior doctors. And so in working with psychological safety and nurturing psychological safety, one of the things that they put into place was this idea of good catch, the phrase good catch. So senior doctors could respond with good catch, which deflates the tension in the room. It deflates from the ego and the power that is being challenged in that moment to really focusing on, all right, good catch. Thanks for pointing it out. Let's get down to making sure that we correct that, that error that has been made. So I love good catch. And then I honestly take some time to introspect because not always do I, of course, you know, as I learn more, I become better at being able to understand the biases that I have. But there have been periods of time and there will, of course, be periods of time in the future as well, where I may not understand why what I said or did was actually a bias. I may not, it may not be clear to me. And that requires me to go back and introspect, to do some work, to go back to being curious about this and saying, well, hey, you know, I don't see it as a bias, but how could it be a bias and why would it be a bias? And maybe it's about reading about something about history. It could be reading about uh, a topic that I'm or an identity that I'm unfamiliar with, reading about context as well, asking people if they're comfortable to be able to tell me why this is a bias and help me learn. But again, coming from that place of curiosity and wanting to find out. So that's my strategy. Listen, apologize, respond, introspect. So that's my formula, if you'd like.
0: And now you've got my brain going on and on about this. Yeah, yeah, I've had this happen as well, where people say I have a bias. And, and I think that brings up not an not an aggressive defense mechanism, but an internal defense mechanism where – in, in my situation that's coming to my mind, I think, okay, and are you the authority on bias? Like, are you right? How much introspection does this take? And it's not about, again, it's not about being right or wrong. I mentioned before that, that my ego is not tied to being right or wrong. My ego is tied to really understanding and maintaining curiosity. With that same thought process, though, I also know that because I don't know everything, neither does anyone else. So I do. <laughs> there is kind of a a balance here, right? It's it's a whole challenge. <laughs> Absolutely, and I think in that
1: introspection process, you might discover that actually, maybe it wasn't really a bias, or maybe it was it was okay to say that in that context, and maybe that might have been, you know, a, a, a one off in that sense. But I think it's about having that curiosity to be able to go back and really deeply reflect on it. And I think as the world around us becomes more aware of and increases its uh, the vocabulary around us, as we might get more comfortable with all of this, I think we'll find better ways to be able to point out other people's biases as well. So that's a lot of the work that I do around empathetic engagement, right? It's one of the seven behaviors that I look at in my second book, The Art of Active Allyship. That when we engage on bias, there needs to be, it needs to come from a place of deep empathy. And I think that helps with what you're saying in terms of, you know, starting off if if I'm pointing out someone's bias to say, hey, you know, I'm not sure, but what you said or perhaps the decision that you're taking, I'm wondering if there might be this particular bias involved in it, or that it just doesn't, it's not sitting right. Can we have a conversation about it? I'm a big believer in the power of questions, as you would have seen in my TED talk as well, that there's, you know, asking the right questions in the right tone can actually be incredibly powerful in getting the other person to reflect on where their biases actually lie. And so whether it's a decision that, you know, someone's making or something they said at lunch or by the coffee machine, you know, taking them aside and then saying, well, hey, you know, the other day you said this and I'm wondering, I'm not sure. But I'm wondering if someone of this identity might have felt that this was an act of discrimination. They might have been triggered or they might have been hurt because of what you said. And maybe there's another way. Let's explore other ways in which we could communicate that. So I think coming from that deep place of empathy and having that growth mindset that I want to do better and I want to help others to do better. And I think this, of course, ties into the culture of organizations and the culture of teams as well. And when we have, you know, you, you started off with saying that you're a part of an organization where you see that incredible level of inclusion. And for me, this is what it looks like, right? It It looks like an environment where we're learning and we're growing and we're seeing all of this as opportunities for us to do better without that kind of blame and shame mentality that unfortunately exists today.
0: All right, so in your current phase of life and career, What are five words that you would say you feel connected with or that kind of identify where you're at right now? Yes. So I think for me, it's impact
1: would be one of them. Change, I think is another word. I would say equity and justice are two more. And I'd also like to put down, I think, grateful. Because for me, actually... I could never have imagined, even five years ago, being where I am today. Not even, I mean, if we go back 10 years, absolutely not, but not even five years ago. So I'm hugely grateful for so many things that have happened in my life, but also people who have lifted me, who have, who have believed in me, who have really taken, you know, I don't like the, the term taking a chance on me because I do believe that I'm able to add value as well. So I don't like that term, but who have really sponsored me, who have amplified my voice, who have amplified what I do in spaces where I don't even, I'm not even there and they're amplifying it. So I have so many people to be grateful for and I'm quite spiritual. So I'd like to think that even I'm you know grateful to the universe for sending these thoughts through these people, sending these opportunities. So for me, grateful is is a big word. I left it to the last one, but maybe it's the most important.
0: And where can everybody go to find you, connect with your work, find your books, all of that?
1: So I think LinkedIn is the best place. I'm most active on that. I'm not a big uh, social media person on other platforms. So LinkedIn is best. So please do connect with me. I'd love to hear from you and what you thought of this as well and and the thoughts that I've shared. But my books are available on Amazon and also in in, uh, bookstores around the world in the US as well. So you should be able to find it with a quick Google search.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing and having this conversation with me. This was awesome. And I have, I always love when I leave with just like more uh, in abundance, more of information to kind of consider and mull over. And this definitely did that for me. So I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Heather. Thanks for joining in for episode two of 2024. I hope this episode with Pornima helped you see a new perspective or maybe gave you some ideas for language. I love some of the language she uses. I believe through conversations just like this, we can all set fire to our ignorance and rise from those ashes together as better humans. As a reminder, the thoughts and opinions that we express today, they're our own. We encourage you to do your own research, come to your own conclusions. Head on over to the show notes to find ways on how to connect with Pornima and to connect with Breaking Bias podcast, please head over to our website Website where you'll find all of our links as well as important resources. If you enjoyed this episode, I would very much appreciate your feedback. Whatever platform you use that allows ratings and drop us a love note. If you haven't already, please hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. Share the show with others to help expand the dialogue. And until next time, don't forget to check your bias and keep the conversations going.